Don't turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Bold, Conversations About Race. Our topic today is the criminal justice system in America and its culture of mass incarceration. Dahlia Ferlito will be having a conversation with Taina Vargas Edmond and Yvette Ale, two activists both impacted by and working to change America's prison systems. After the interview, we have a special message from Rasan Thomas. He's on the board of directors of Initiate Justice, co-founder of Prison Renaissance, Initiate Justice's inside organizer, and is currently incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. Of course, at the end, as always, we will have our calls to action, and you can find more information about many of the things referenced throughout this episode in the show notes, which will be hosted at our home site, patreon.com smallbeans. We hope you enjoy the episode. Here's Dahlia. In Los Angeles County, 42% of inmates are currently incarcerated for no other reason than the fact that they cannot afford bail. What's up, everybody? This is Dahlia, your host for Bold Conversations About Race. And I'm so excited to say that we've made it to our third podcast episode. And today's conversation is going to be about the criminal justice system and on incarceration. So we have Initiate Justice founder and executive director, Taina Vargas Edmond. We also have Yvette Ale, statewide co-coordinator of Californians United for a Responsible Budget, or as we know them, CURB. And she is also the campaign coordinator for Justice LA. All right, so I'm going to begin with you, Taina. Can you just like tell our faithful audience members how you came to the work of Initiate Justice? What led you there? What led you to basically creating an entire organization? And um, anything you want the audience members to know about about why your, your work is important to get involved in? For sure. And thank you for having me, Dahlia. Um, so I'm a woman who's impacted by incarceration. My husband, Richard, um, ended up doing seven years in the California state prison system. And he and I created Initiate Justice together while he was still incarcerated because we wanted people who are directly impacted by incarceration to be leaders in the policy advocacy work around ending mass incarceration. So. Initiate Justice aims to activate the political power of people in prison, formerly incarcerated people, and their loved ones who are supporting them. Um, So what we do is we train folks who are directly impacted in how to be legislative advocates, how to introduce bills and get them passed, how to organize campaigns from inside the prisons themselves or, you know, inside the prison visiting rooms. So most of our members are currently incarcerated. We have about 13,000 people who get our newsletters every quarter um, with policy updates and action items for how they can get involved. And we've just launched um, a new program called the Institute of Impacted Leaders, which is a 12-week intensive training program for people on the outside who are impacted by incarceration so that they can get trained up in statewide advocacy work um, so that they can be leading the work from the outside as well. Wow, that's amazing. So this, is, this isn't this is just work for you. This is like 
this is personal, right? It's like about personal transformation because you are directly impacted by this. Right, it's very personal. And every day I walk with the understanding that my husband wouldn't be home now if it wasn't for policy change, if mm. it wasn't for policy reform, um, specifically for a policy that was led by people directly impacted by incarceration. That's yeah. why we do what we do. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yvette, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about what landed you to Curb and kind of the types of work that you're involved in? Sure. Uh, like Taina, I've also been impacted by incarceration for a large portion of my life. My dad was incarcerated in jails and prison and detention centers. So my family endured the effects of incarceration. Um, so often the voices of family members are lost in that conversation. And being an undocumented woman in Southern California, um, I also experienced um, the the criminalization that undocumented people experience, mm -hmm. uh, the lack of access to resources and support. And so when my family was navigating without my dad in our home, who was our primary breadwinner, we also didn't have access to resources. Um, I'm also a queer woman, and so I've seen the way that uh, the system impacts queer people so when I was in college, I started organizing at that nexus of immigrant rights, um, anti-incarceration, and LGBTQ activism. Uh, I started working with Justice Now as an intern, um, God, over a decade ago, <laughs> and they really gave me my framework for abolition. So when I got the opportunity to work with CURB and uh, really exercise my policy chops, but also do grassroots organizing that I'm really passionate about, um, it was really transformative for me. I've been at CURB for the last couple of years, and for folks that aren't familiar with CURB, we're a coalition of over 85 organizations across the state uh, working to reduce the number of people inside prisons and jails, reduce the number of prisons and jails, and redirect the cost savings to health and human services mm. that are based in our community. Mm. You just mentioned a word that I think is often misunderstood uh, by people who might not necessarily be kind of in the know or in organizing spaces. That word is abolition, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about abolition of police or abolition of prisons, Oftentimes, you know, folks will will go to, well, what happens if we didn't have prisons? Every mm -hmm. all these quote unquote bad people will be in the streets and it's going to be chaos. And what would we do then? Right. Like and and can you so can you just kind of explain a little bit about what abolition really means? Sure. So abolition doesn't mean lack of accountability. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make that clear. But the type of quote unquote accountability that is system led is inherently racist. Uh, it's not actually keeping anyone safe. It's not restoring communities. It's not restoring individuals. It's not addressing mm. things like mental health needs and poverty. It actually exacerbates those things. Mm. Uh, so when I talk about abolition, for me, it's a framework of healing. It's a framework of restoration. Um, it's a framework of community-led solutions. Mm. And when we exercise abolition and, and policy, it's really with the understanding that folks should not be left behind, that they're not disposable. So for me, abolition is not disposing of people, and it's actually building a system that protects our communities, that uh, allows for a space to heal. 
Um, and so often those that are survivors of violence are used as pawns mm. uh, in order to push a state agenda. In my case, my father was incarcerated because of some of the violence that I experienced. But he, removing him from our family and isolating him actually didn't help us any. Mm. What would have been restorative for our family, what we would have liked, is for my dad to have had access to uh substance use treatment Mm. to have um some mental health professionals provide trauma support for not just him but for my family that would have allowed us to lead healthier safer lives not removing him from our community right it's like what we're always taught is the best solution like you have to take people away what are we doing to make them more whole at the end of the day you have anything to add to that taina you know, I think Yvette did a great job of, of laying out what abolition means. I agree 100% with everything um, that she said. I think the only thing that I would add is that in this country, I feel like we're really addicted to the idea of punitive justice. Mm. We're addicted to the idea that punishment equals accountability. Right. Um, but that's not what accountability looks like. That's not how we prevent harm from happening. Um, it's not an effective deterrence. Um, that's not how we help to heal people, to heal um, families and communities who are all impacted by harm. Um, I, I really believe that um, this country has an addiction to punishment. Mm. And we also need healing from that addiction to move towards a more Um, transformative system that will actually heal communities and keep us safe. Right, right. And so a lot of folks talk about the models of like restorative justice and transformative justice. And do either of you have experience or want to talk a little bit about what um, an example of restorative justice might be for harm cause that does not necessarily involve incarcerating somebody? Well, I think that um, Yvette, you know, laid out a lot of really good examples with what would have been helpful, um, you know, for her and her family. Um, you know, similarly, my father was incarcerated when I was growing up, um, also with substance abuse issues, um, you know, mental health issues um, with him and, you know, other members of our family. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until he was, you know, put in a substance abuse treatment program mm-hmm. that it stopped. And this was after, you know, years and years of incarceration and the system seeking to, you know, hide the problem, erase mm-hmm. him in a jail cell mm-hmm. um, instead of, you know, giving us opportunities or giving him the opportunity to heal, you know, from his own childhood trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is what the source of, of all of it was. Um, so I think restorative justice looks like, you know, actually addressing what the issue is and not just creating punishment for the harm that was caused, um, you know, seeking to find the root of the problem, seeking to find an appropriate solution, seeking to find um, an appropriate way to communicate between the person who, you know, caused the harm and then the, the person or, or people who were harmed so that everybody can find healing um, you know, Yvette was talking about the, um, you know, the the survivors of violence, um, but we'll talk about them, you know, as like the victims, mm. the, the crime victims, the victims of violence, um, you know, who, because of their pain and feeling like they don't have another way to channel it, will really push for this um, really strong, like, punishment-based system because you know, we we really aren't equipped with the other tools. Um, So I think what restorative justice looks like is, you know, doing the extra work Mm. of figuring out what we need to do to prevent harm, um, to, uh, you know, to help people find what they need to heal. 
um, you know, which is a little bit more involved. It's going to take a little bit more thinking than just throwing somebody in a cage and saying, you know, good luck next time. Right. Um, but it's work that we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's work that's happening every day. Um, mm-hmm. My first exposure to transformative justice circles was through queer community. Um, I think Insight has a really good model um, and it calls for community members to be involved, um, to do that extra work that Taina was mentioning, to come in circle, to uh, provide an advocate for the person that committed the harm and also for the person that um, or the people that have survived that harm or experienced that harm. Um, It it actively engages community in ways that um, really reverberate beyond that circle. It gives us tangible tools to see someone's process of harm to healing Mm -hmm. um, actually creates um, stronger, better communities. You know, we've been talking a lot about harm, and oftentimes that conversation really is about um, the quote-unquote, you know, victim of crime, and then the perpetrator of that crime, and then something happens, and then we remove the perpetrator, they go away for a while, as you said, Taina, Um, and because of the language that is used commonly, it's like uh, people who commit crimes are often dehumanized, Mm -hmm. and so it, it allows for the rest of society to say they deserve what they got, and, um, and that's their punishment, and then assume that there's no other consequence when we you know, extract people from their families or from their communities, um, from their loved ones. And oftentimes there's additional harm as a result of that, that taking away of that person. And I think those, those pieces are not commonly understood. There's not a lot of empathy for people who might be um, experiencing incarceration in their family unit or in their communities. Um, and so can either of you or both of you talk a little bit about what could be some of those unseen or unknown um, implications or ripple effects when you're dealing with a loved one who's incarcerated? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I can speak a little bit to my personal experience because I think that it's the experience of so many people, um, so many women in in particular. Mm. Um, You know, one in four women in the United States have an incarcerated loved one and one in two black women have an incarcerated loved one. Um, And that looks like so many different things. One, there's the financial cost. Um, It's very expensive to maintain a relationship with someone in prison. Um, Collect calls from inside a prison are very expensive. Um, Visiting a loved one is very expensive. Prisons and jails are often in rural areas that are are far away. Um, So it takes a lot to be able to travel to those places, to um, stay in hotels, to pay for food, a lot of times, you know, to rent a car. and you know sometimes you have to fly because some of the prisons are so far away. Um, there's the cost of you know sending in packages for your incarcerated loved one um, through commissary. Um, folks, you know, don't get access to a lot of food or you know quality food or um, you know hygiene products. So oftentimes it's necessary um, to supplement what they need by sending them packages which are very expensive Um, and then there's also the mental and emotional toll that I think is really invisible Um, you know visiting is a very traumatic experience correctional officers um, act in ways that are you know very dehumanizing towards the people who are visiting Um, but it doesn't just happen in the visiting room it happens in society where people are judged for having an incarcerated loved one Um, you're stigmatized you're isolated and in a lot of ways you're living in a different kind of prison Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know even 
if you're fortunate enough to have your loved one come home, then essentially like you are the reentry system because we don't have an effective reentry system. Um, so you're the one who is, you know, the families are the ones who are looking for housing, who are, you know, trying to help um, the person coming home find a job and, you know, help them get mental health treatment. Mm-hmm. You have to find your own mental health mm-hmm. treatment for the trauma that, that you've been through. Um, so the costs are, you know, mental and emotional. And I, I think for the family members and for the communities who are impacted, often it goes unseen um, because, you know, we, we can see very clearly how someone who is, you know, actually incarcerated, what the harms are there. But there's a, a ripple effect of how it harms the people who are close to them, um, what the impacts are in the community. Yeah, there's there's just so many ways that this system is, um, you know, exacerbating mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. instead of, you know, trying to figure out a way that we can address it um, and, you know, trying to figure out a way that we can actually, you know, figure out what to do to help people be whole. Yeah, I would I would just add that um, for undocumented families, it means not being able to see your loved one. Um, it means just being able to correspond through letters. Um, and once someone is released, it means possible deportation and never seeing your loved one again. Um, in communities like here in LA, things like uh, gang injunctions can mean not being able to live with your family. So a gang injunction is basically redlining communities and saying that folks can't be in certain areas because they're affiliated with a specific gang. So it's a way of uh, social control uh, vis-a-vis gentrification and um, identifying communities through this gang lens. Um, Gang databases are part of that as well. So if someone is placed on a gang database uh, by law enforcement, they don't always know. Uh, So they can be interacting in their communities and live in their homes, but are actually exposing themselves to being picked up by police. If you are on one of those gang database lists, you're also prevented from uh, living in uh, public housing. Um, so it affects uh, families and it keeps uh, families separated. Um, in certain areas, if you are wearing white clean socks, um, you can be identified as a gang member. If you wear certain colors, if you're walking with two or more people, uh, that can be uh, sufficient for you to be extracted from your communities. Um, it's racially uh, loaded. Um, black and brown communities are specifically targeted. And I would also say um, uh, masculine of center, brown and black uh, queer people have also been uh, targeted by gang injunctions in a way that's been very invisible. Um, if we're if you're lucky enough to be able to get accepted into an apartment where that person can live, um, like Taina mentioned, there's a lot of limitations in terms of employment uh, that a person returning from prison faces. And the family members, often the women, are the ones that are holding that down. They hold it down when their loved ones are inside. They hold it down when they need to pay bail. Mm -hmm. Um, Over 80% of bail is paid by women of color in California. And 
women of color are often very invisible in that process. And when it's women that are being incarcerated, they're not visited as often as the men uh, mm. because women are usually doing the visiting. Mm. And the, the gendered experience of incarceration um, is often not talked about um, and invisible, whether they're the person being incarcerated or the loved one. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, as, as we talk, it's just so easy to kind of get wrapped up on, in, in prisons and the people that are in prisons and jails and not thinking about the community as, as well that can be fully um, or just as, just as impacted. In, in extremely harmful ways. And um, I'm wondering if we could possibly switch gears a little bit uh, as we're, we've been focusing a lot on some like really heavy topics about um, how incarceration impacts people. And I'm also thinking about the amazing work that you all are doing to empower people so that we can actually drive a wedge and, and um, in the harm that's being caused by our current criminal justice system, and not only drive a wedge in it, but actually create something wholly new and entirely different, something that we've actually never seen before. And so um, I know both of you uh, in different ways have experience in working with uh, people who are impacted by incarceration. You yourselves are impacted by incarceration. Can you talk a little bit more about, I know Taina, you were just talking about some of the programs and training folks um, can you just talk about why it's so important for people who are directly impacted to to be leading the way around these issues? Um, and then also, like people who are not directly impacted, what it, what would our role be to be able to support your efforts? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that question. Um, I believe that it's critical that people directly impacted by incarceration are leading the movement to end it because we are the experts of our own experiences. So we are the ones who know best exactly what that harm is and how to address it. Um, but oftentimes, you know, people who are in prison or formerly incarcerated people or even people who have incarcerated loved ones um, are seen as maybe unintelligent, we're seen as, um, you know, maybe hard to work with, um, you know, even just like logistically speaking, it's hard to communicate with people who are in prison. So organizing someone inside is not as easy as sending an email and getting them to click mm. and do an online petition. <laughs> right. um, you know, there, there's more the slacktivism, right? Yeah, there's, there's a lot more um, work involved. But it, I think that it's very important that we do that work um, and that we learn from people who are inside that we get our solutions from people who are inside or you know people who have been there and that we all learn from our collective experiences um, because the experience of one impacted person is not going to be the same as another impacted person um, so it's really key that we move through this work um, through a lens of like intersectionality and so intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race class and gender regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage all of our different um, you know ways that we are oppressed and ways that we are privileged and can leverage that privilege you know to support one another um, are lifted up as we do this so um, that is why at Initiate Justice, we do what we can for our part to bring the skills and the resources um, to kind of like build that bridge um, so that folks who are the experts in the firsthand experience can use their story um, to bring about change in the most strategic and effective way possible. Mm -hmm. 
So like Initiate Justice, um, CURB is led by impacted people. Mm. Um, both myself and Amber Rose Howard um, are impacted by uh, incarceration. So um, that sets a different tone to the way that we work. Um, and it allows other folks that have been impacted to also step into their leadership. Mm. Um, when we see organizations like Initiate Justice really taking their cues from folks on the inside, and I know Taina will talk more in depth about ACA6 and um, perhaps the origin stories around that, uh, which I find really powerful. Uh, so much of the most innovative transformative work comes from folks that have been inside, mm -hmm. that are inside, that have had loved ones inside. Mm -hmm. uh, because like Taina said, we are the experts of our experience. We are able to understand the nuances of uh, incarceration on our loved ones, on ourselves and our communities. And for folks that are not um, impacted by incarceration, but do want to help um, being, well, I, I guess this is like kind of trite, but give us your money. <laughs> you can always use the money. And there will be links in the show notes, y'all. <laughs> but for real, like give us resources. Uh, help us. If you're, if you're not wealthy yourself, if you're money adjacent, uh, connect with your community. Inform them about the good work that Initiate Justice is doing. Um, that curb that mm -hmm. justice la that all of our organizations and coalitions are doing so that they can not just give us their money but also have the framework and be mm -hmm. advocates in their own spaces in their own communities for the type of work that we're trying to do uh you can also support with advocacy work if you uh have a relationship with your representative in Sacramento, or if you don't and just want to build one, mm -hmm. uh, being able to enter into those spaces and talk about why it's important to you, even if you're not directly impacted, is also really powerful. Mm. So advocacy is definitely uh, a tool that folks can use and CURB uh, trains folks on advocacy and so does Initiate Justice. We bring folks up to Sacramento and we train them on how to lobby. Um, Quest for Democracy is actually coming up. Mm. Um, we bring folks uh, from all over the state up to Sacramento and help push our platform uh, throughout the various offices. So that's something that folks, especially directly impacted folks, impacted folks should be plugging into uh, and leveraging those resources. If you have any other types of resources, if you have access to a podcast studio, <laughs> you, <laughs> um, you'd be surprised what uh, can be leveraged for the mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. So don't think that you don't have something to contribute. Some folks that, you know, the, the problem is so overwhelming that they kind of shut down and they're like, well, I don't have anything to offer. I'm not a policy expert. Right. Like, I don't know, the first thing about organizing. Right. Well, you can learn. And mm -hmm. White People for Black Lives is a good space mm -hmm. to plug into that work and learn. So there are those spaces, there are those tools, and everyone has an expertise or uh, a plug with resources in some way. Mm. Thanks for the shout out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Yvette is right. Like, we all have a place in the movement, no matter how big or small you think your contribution is. It's really about uh, showing up and showing up daily, really. Um, we know that like, um, so you've talked a lot about your policy work and in, in 
many spaces, there's like a, a lot of thoughts and passionate feelings around what creates the most impactful change, right? Mm-hmm. And some uh, people believe that it's you have to work outside the system. Some people believe you have to work within the system. Some people believe it's, you know, we need to reform our broken system. Some people say our system isn't broken. It's working exactly as it was designed and we need something new. There's all of these different ways of looking at the oppression that we see before us and what we need to do in order to combat it. And y'all focus a lot um, of your time and your energy on, on policy work. Can you explain why you think this is, this is a, a useful strategy and why uh, folks should be supporting this type of uh, work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, we definitely need multiple strategies in order to be able to, you know, dismantle this oppressive system. You know, I'm of the frame of mind that the system is not broken it's working exactly (laughs) the way that it's intended to work um but i think that if we feel ourselves to be outside of this system then it will continue to operate without us Mm. um so a strategy that i have and it's definitely not the only strategy um but a strategy that i focus on is making sure that people um who are closest to the pain people who have directly been harmed by mass incarceration are seen as a formidable force. Um, mm. You know, in California, for example, we have 130,000 people in prison. We have 80,000 people in county jails. We have 50,000 people on state parole. You mm. know, multiply that by all of the family members and the communities who are harmed by incarceration. For sure, we have strength in numbers. So there's no reason that um, in Sacramento, in, in the capital, we are not seen as a powerful interest group, mm. a powerful lobby group um, the same way that the district attorneys association or the prison guards union or the Mm. police chiefs association are seen as experts on public safety Um, you know we are part of that conversation too Um, so we should in my opinion I believe that we should leverage the same if not more power uh, when it comes to decision making the reason that I think policy is so important is because at the end of the day, um, you know, it is laws that are, are governing this. It is sentencing enhancements like the three strikes law mm-hmm. that um, is, you know, creating these really long, really harsh prison sentences. Um, it's, you know, policies around how our communities are criminalized um, that is, you know, even causing our communities to be so heavily policed in the first place. It's um, divestment from our communities um, in terms of, you know, what schools are invested in, what um, community health services or mental health services are invested in. And, you know, all of that is dictated through the state budget. Mm. Um, So I think that it's really important that our voices are heard, that our experiences are, you know, right there in the in the face of the decision who are deciding what happens in our communities. Um, So, you know, I'll I'll reiterate, like, it's not the only strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, For me personally, I feel like that's my niche. You know, that's something that I understand. That's something um, that I believe I can, you know, serve a purpose in helping other people have their voices heard when it comes to changing policy as well. Mm. Yeah, Taina mentioned the budget. Right. and for CURB, that's a really important mm-hmm. piece of our work. It's mm-hmm. legislative advocacy, but also budget advocacy. Because right. um, at the end of the day, those are our dollars. Those are right. public dollars. Mm-hmm. And so not engaging in policy is basically resigning all of the billions of dollars that are extracted from us every day. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's why we engage in the budget spaces the way that we do. But I, I think that there's an important distinction between reformist reforms and abolitionist reforms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Folks on the inside are suffering. 
the conditions inside of our prisons and our jails are atrocious. So to wash our hands of what we can do tangibly through policy, uh, in my opinion, is ignoring the experience of the folks that are on the inside. Mm. Um, and supporting them doesn't always have to look through uh, like policy. It can look like supporting a hunger strike, right? Mm. It can look like amplifying their voices and their experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, but being able to have a direct impact in the way that folks are treated, in the way that their families are being extracted from, um, in their sentencing, like mm -hmm. Taina was alluding to earlier, has a material impact on our communities. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about what type of policy we're gonna push, we make sure that no one is left behind by that policy and that we're not setting ourselves up for a more difficult fight in the future. Mm -hmm. So we avoid language that uh, creates a binary of deserving and undeserving. Yes. And so we can incrementally start chipping away right. at these policies that oppress us, but without having to reinforce that system that's telling us that certain folks should be locked away and others should not. And so in terms of our policy work, uh, that has been CURB's uh, abolitionist framework mm -hmm. in choosing what we push and how we frame the policy conversations. But we also engage in a lot of grassroots organizing. And so that, includes elements of policy work, but also includes a lot of public education and community engagement, connecting our folks with resources so that they can show up, so that they are able to also code switch in spaces. Language is a huge barrier mm. to policy work and to organizing work. Code switching is uh, the ability or the necessity, rather, to uh, change dialect, speech, um, the your mannerisms. It can look like various ways, but folks of color, immigrant folks, uh, queer folks, we're often placed in positions where we have to change uh, the way that we communicate in order to survive, in order to be read as legitimate or intelligent uh, or able to blend in in certain spaces. Um, and so for me, that's looked like uh, speaking in, in a certain way when I'm in a policy space, uh, when I'm giving public comment at the Board of Supervisors versus when I'm in my community doing education work or at home with my family. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not just talking about just, you know, Spanish and English and Chinese, but also the language of policy. Um, right. It's difficult to understand. It's intentionally that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to provide access to training around what that looks like and what that translates to our communities is really important. And then also being able to elevate the the conversations that are happening in communities in those policy spaces as well um, and not always having to just adopt the language of the system, but forcing the system to hear our language and mm -hmm. our experiences is, is important as well. And that, that can be done really effectively through media work, uh, through videos, through art and activism, which Justice LA uh, really has leaned into in the campaign. Um, it's a way of disrupt, disrupting the, the the narratives of the system and policymakers and forcing them to listen to us in different ways. Mm, yeah. Something you mentioned, both of you mentioned the terms 
the term uh, divestment. And then you also talked a lot about the budget. And I just wanted to like lift up the notion around the budget because the budget allegedly reflects our priorities, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't reflect the people's priorities, but it reflects somebody's priorities, right? And that's usually the those who create that budget. And when we look at in the city of Los Angeles, more than half of our budget goes to law enforcement, it goes to LAPD, it's around 52% or so of the general funds. And I believe that I th the state budget is like 62% or something around there goes towards incarceration. So if we think about the budget being reflective of somebody's priorities, that's the priorities um, that we want for our humans. Mm -hmm. And imagine if 62% of that budget went to education and healthcare and housing, what our communities would look like, right? And that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about divestment or when we're talking about how to achieve, you know, abolition, you know, at some point in, in, our, in our very near future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, can we just like take a moment and think about and enjoy and celebrate some wins? Like what are some things that y'all are excited by because y'all have seen some changes in, in you know the last few months, last year, or however you wanna frame it? Um, well, for me in the last couple of years, I think a huge victory that we won in um, 2016 was the passage of Prop 57. Um, that was huge in shifting uh, or t at least it was huge in taking the first step for us to be able to shift away from this like punitive based system and work towards something um, that encourages people to invest in their own healing and transformation. And we know that Richard got out early because of Prop 57, which is absolutely amazing. Um, so Prop 57 did a few things, but the most significant piece of it was that it created a system where people in prison can actually earn time off of their sentence mm -hmm. by completing certain educational and and rehabilitative programs. Um, so programs that are you know, shown to reduce recidivism. Recidivism is defined as people um, being released from incarceration and then re-entering the incarceration system. So um, that can be through um, actually a new crime or a new charge, um, but it can also be through um, violating a term of probation, a term of parole, which is um, actually what contributes to the high rates of recidivism. Um, when folks are on probation or on parole, it's very easy through just like a technical violation to become incarcerated again, because there are so many harsh conditions placed on people who are released from prison or jail. Um, because, you know, to end mass incarceration, we're not going to just be able to close down the prisons and jails overnight. We have to take steps towards ending our current system of mass incarceration. So I think that Prop 57 was a really critical um, key first step um, so that we can, you know, encourage folks to work towards their own freedom um, so that we can, you know, also start to create a, a, a system to create a precedent to show like, hey, this works, you mm -hmm. know, we can let people out, we can, you know, have people reenter their community safe, um, safely. Um, and, you know, and everything is, is fine, you know, like, let's start, let's continue right. to work towards this model. Um, I think that other successes that recently that have made me really excited are um, the passage of Amendment 4 in Florida, um, which restored voting rights to about 1.4 million formerly incarcerated people. And that has really created um, a national momentum. Um, even now we're seeing a national conversation amongst Democratic right. candidates even around Bernie Sanders talking about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> around, um, you know, 
the removal of the right to vote for people who are in prison, for people who are formerly incarcerated. And that's something that Initiate Justice is working on now um, with CURB, um, amongst other organizations, um, on ACA 6, which would be an assembly constitutional amendment that would put something on the ballot in 2020 to restore voting rights for people on parole in California so that folks who are impacted by incarceration, you know, can very directly be involved in the political process, can very directly say how they want their tax dollars to be spent, Mm. can very directly say, um, you know, which candidates they support, which local measures they support, um, so that we can create the best system of community safety. Um, And if you think about it, you know, people who um, have been incarcerated can think personally like what systems they needed in place to prevent their own incarceration they can think you know what services they needed they can um you know from a first-hand experience say where they think um budgetary dollars like should be prioritized it should be spent so i think um that what we'll see in the movement to restore voting rights for impacted people is that um you know folks who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated are not part of the problem they can actually be part of the solution if mm. given the chance mm-hmm. and that's something that gives me a lot of hope in this moment that's great and um can you just speak for a few seconds on the democracy needs everyone report and we'll be mm-hmm. sure to link to that in the show notes as well absolutely um so as we've been doing this you know grassroots organizing work around restoring the right to vote for people in prison and formerly incarcerated people a conversation that has come up a lot is you know, well, why should incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated be able to vote? Um, You know, there's an assumption about the type of person they Mm. are, the type of things that they would vote for, the ways that it would impact our political system. Um, But the fact is that uh, research just didn't exist. Um, It's just based on people's biases and myths that they bought into. We conducted a survey of more than a thousand um, currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people and asked if you could vote, what would you vote for? Um, you know, would you even vote if you could? Why would you want to vote? And one of the responses that we got from our member Juan Haynes in San Quentin was, I want to vote because democracy needs everyone. Mm. So that became um, the title of our report. That became the slogan for our campaign to pass ACA 6 to restore voting rights for people who are on parole because it is, you know, it's just absolutely critical and that's what we revealed in the report that overwhelmingly um, people impacted by incarceration do want to vote they do want to be engaged in the political process Um, contrary to popular belief a majority of folks are contributing positively to their communities whether that community is in prison or you know out here um, in the in the free world um, folks are going to school, folks are mentoring other people, they're participating in groups and doing a lot of self-work inside that most people on the outside don't do. <laughs> um, and then the third thing is that folks felt directly that having the right to vote would improve public safety, would help them feel more connected to their communities, would help them stay out of prison and jail. Um, so yeah, the the Democracy Needs Everyone report is available on our website, so the folks can read, you know, the the details, the the anecdotal um, evidence, the stories that folks share about why this is important to them, um, and also the ideas that they have around creating a better public safety system. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And for folks, um, at the end of this episode, you'll be hearing from one of uh, the originators of this. Um, 
of this campaign. His name is Rasan, and he'll be talking about uh, why this is an important uh, piece to be getting involved in. Yvette, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of your exciting successes and what's coming up in the pipeline for campaigns that people should be aware of? Yeah, we've had some pretty major successes this year uh, in terms of our jail fight work. So just for some context, um, about seven years ago, the L.A. Board of Supervisors approved a $3.5 billion jail expansion plan. This plan uh, would have created two new jails, a women's jail that would have been out in Lancaster on toxic soil and a mental health jail that would replace Men's Central. And that would have caged both men and women uh, with mental health needs. So this fight has been going on for almost a decade. So CURB, the Youth Justice Coalition, Critical Resistance, Dignity and Power Now, these are, all, these are all organizations that have been part of this jail fight um, from its inception. And finally, this year, the supervisors voted to completely stop the women's jail plan and transformed the mental health jail into a mental health center. So this is in our opinion, kind of like half a win. Mm. Um, we oppose the construction of an asylum, uh, for right. a lack of a better term. Sure. It still has the same blueprint, a 3,800-bed institution that would cage folks with mental health needs. The, this opposes national standards. National standards tell us that small, community-based uh, mental health clinics are actually the way to go. Mm. Uh, we don't support spending two billion dollars on one asylum in the middle of los angeles what our communities need is a decentralized local approach to mental health treatment yeah. that is community informed and community run so right now we're in the midst of that battle uh, really pushing for a transformation of what that plan can look like we're working with progressive architects and planners to build out our own model that we can basically yes. spoon feed to the county uh, since they like us doing a lot of their work for them. <laughs> and we're working with healthcare professionals to inform what the implementation of that model will look like. And we're organizing with unions to push for a decentralized model that actually is in line with union demands for local zip code hiring. Mm. So labor, uh, healthcare workers, healthcare advocates, uh, planners, they're all on our side and the community. And the supervisors have really taken note. So February was a critical vote for the jail plan. It's when the supervisors decided to move forward with a plan or not. And not only did they uh, stop the women's jail, shift the narrative around uh, the mental health jail to a mental health um, center, which was significant. I, I would like to point out that although the mental health quote unquote jail was not completely stopped. The fact that they're reframing the conversation mm. from whether or not we needed a jail to what does healthcare look like in our communities right. is a significant victory. Right. And the supervisors were literally using our talking points. I think at one point, Mark Ridley Thomas said, care not cages, Whoa. which has been our <laughs> mantra for right, almost for a years. decade. That's significant. Right. When Supervisor Solis spoke passionately against the mental health uh, center saying a jail is a jail is a jail mm. 
to be able to work so closely with her office where we're in the in the audience uh, while the supervisors are speaking and we're literally texting Supervisor Solis's justice deputy our talking points and our analysis in real time wow. and hearing it um, coming out of the supervisor's mouths and building that relationship, that's a significant right. shift for community that we're actually are building strong relationships in the county where we can push our vision. So the supervisors uh, made those decisions around the jails, but they also created an alternatives to, alternatives to incarceration work group. So what this body is tasked to do is create two reports, an interim report and then a report later this year that will look at what alternatives to incarceration can look like in our county. And we actually have several of our organizers appointed to that uh, work group, including uh, some county officials as well. But the fact that community is actively a part of that work group and, and envisioning and transforming what LA County can look like is really significant. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, the supervisors put forth uh, a motion in February around pretrial reform. So I like to preface, preface, that's the word? Preface. 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 <laughs> English is my second language. <laughs> I like to preface this conversation by saying that, you know, a win is not always a win and a loss isn't always a loss. Mm. And when it came to statewide bail reform, oh, SB yes. 10 felt like a huge loss. So SB 10 or Senate Bill 10 uh, was a bill that uh, eliminated money bail uh, for all intents and purposes, but replaced money bail with an automated system of racial profiling called algorithmic based risk assessment instruments. It's another mouthful. Right. Uh, so basically what uh, these algorithms are, fancy formulas that take data like your zip code, your prior arrest record, your gender, your age, and use that to give you a risk score, much like a credit score, to determine your flight risk wow. uh, or your risk of being re-arrested, not even convicted. Mm. And so that number would be used to determine whether or not you're set free. So for folks that have been uh, criminalized in their communities, for communities that are over-policed, that would have different arrest records than other communities, right. this is basically codifying racial profiling on a mass scale. It's terrifying. It's yeah. some minority report shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is an example of where technology is actually used <laughs> to perpetuate incarceration. Right. But it was hailed as like, the new, the new great thing mm -hmm. that can just replace money bail and eliminate uh, racism because it eliminates, you know, bias. But it's really ingraining bias into our system like right. we've never it's seen like it before. Thin, yeah. It also expands judicial discretion, which is mm. when it comes to uh, when it comes to bias, judicial discretion is one of those cogs in the wheel. Um, and then it also codifies the role of probation as the pretrial service provider. And pro probation department, especially here in Los Angeles, are incredibly problematic. 
they're a part of the incarceration mechanism. They perpetuate the ellipses of incarceration. And here in Los Angeles, they're under review for violence, for pepper spraying youth, uh, for mismanagement of funds. The funding that probation gets compared to community is, is absolutely disgusting. AB 109, uh, so Assembly Bill 109 was a bill that allocated funds from the state to, uh, to local counties in order to reduce recidivism. It was intended to go to community, to go to the folks that are actually doing the work of re- reducing recidivism, but most of that money goes to probation and the sheriff. So they're extracting from the community, but the results are actually more violence mm. and more incarceration. Mm-hmm. So. SB 10 would have codified probation as part of that system and not allowed Los Angeles to create our own system. So that's just a little bit of context there. Mm. Early on uh, last year, Justice LA wrote to the supervisors and we critiqued the, uh, the county's assessment of SB 10 and let them know this is dangerous. This will only perpetuate uh, the expansion of incarceration in our county, which we are not even equipped to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ignored us. And so when SB 10 passed, the county did an assessment of how that would impact uh, the jail population here in Los Angeles. And sure enough, it would more than double our jail population. Wow. So even with the jail plan that they were pushing, it could not hold the number of people that would be incarcerated as a result of this bad piece of legislation. Wow. So because of that, they kind of came back to us with their tail between their legs and wanted to re-engage us in the pretrial conversation. So as a result, we've been uh, engaging with the supervisors more closely around building out an alternative model that puts um, pretrial services in the hands of community-based organizations that doesn't use risk assessments, but instead uses needs and strength-based assessment in order to connect people uh, pre-trial to the services that they need, whether it's housing, whether it's mental health support, whether it's job training, whether it's a text message reminder to come to court. Right. So, so much of um, of the lack of um, of access to resources affects folks' ability to advocate for themselves when they are being charged with uh, with a crime. And it also um, SB ten also did away with the presumption of innocence. So one major piece of our advocacy work around pretrial is upholding due process. It's protecting folks' presumption of innocence. Because if you're pretrial, you haven't been convicted of anything. You Mm. should be able to come home. Right. And so that's a lot of the work that we're doing um, as a result of SB 10. So even though it was a loss on the state level, um, it has opened up the space to have the conversations locally about what pretrial reform should look like. And the motion in February that the supervisors passed, we redlined that motion. Um, it does. It didn't have everything that we wanted. It had some pieces that we're still very concerned about, uh, especially around the RAIs, the risk assessment instruments. 
but we are more engaged with our electeds than ever before. We're more influential with, than ever before. And I'm really excited to see what that will look like going forward, especially um, after the referendum. So there is a referendum that's happening against SB 10 that will be on the November 2020 ballot. Mm. And we encourage folks uh, to oppose the implementation of SB 10 and support the referendum. Uh, the referendum is being pushed by the bail bonds industry. So this is where it gets hairy. Interesting. Strange bedfellows. Str- well, no bedfellows. <laughs> we want to end the use of money bail. Mm-hmm. Like, point blank. Right. But we also don't want to replace it with even more harmful systems, right? And so stopping SB10 is important, but also we do not support the bail bonds industry in any way. We do not support their messaging. Uh, We are coming... We're attacking this problem from very different angles. Mm. So I just wanted to make that crystal clear. Yes, yes, yes. Very clear. (laughs) Well, there's a lot to be celebrating, and then there's still a lot of work to do. Um, There's definitely no shortage of work um, that we have before us. But, you know, I think one thing I I thought would be cool to kind of end on is like a positive note. So, like, I don't know if y'all have read a book called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, um, but we'll link to that in show notes, people. Uh, But there's a a piece that she talks about um, on something called like radical imagination. And that like what we see these like oppressive structures that we see before us were the products of somebody's imagination and in order for us to um overcome what we see before us we need it's our job to continually radically imagine the alternatives so if we were to like kind of vision together like what would our like just and equitable and liberatory world look like like, what would that be for you? I have a lot of visions, um, so I'll, I'll try and keep it short for the purpose of this um, program. I imagine a world in which people are actually invested in from the very beginning. Um, so, you know, children grow up in communities that are safe. They have access to education and medical care and, you know, mental health care and support and are embraced for exactly who they are from the very beginning um, so that it doesn't have to develop into some kind of a, you know, some kind of trauma um, where they end up causing harm later on in life. Um, I envision a world where we put an end to patriarchy Mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, cis men are supposed to be violent are supposed to be powerful are supposed to be dominating over um you know women and and over each other and that's what you know their power and their strength looks like um i envision a world where masculinity can be um you know something that's healthy something that um is seen where you know it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay to be emotional um and you know that is seen as being strong as well Um, I envision a world where, you know, when people do cause harm, because, you know, we do, all of us cause harm, um, that we have an opportunity to restore that harm, that we have an opportunity to make amends, um, to seek collective healing, um, and that collective healing does not look like putting somebody in a cage and separating them from their family, community, and loved ones, um, Yeah, I just envision a a place where people are seen as people 
um, and that we cannot erase social issues by just locking people up. Mm. All the things Taina said. <laughs> cosign, cosign. <laughs> Definitely cosign on all of that. Um, I, I envision a world also free of capitalism and the commodification of our bodies, mm. um, free of extraction from our communities, whether it's our people or our ideas or our languages um, or our histories or our healing practices, um, that those things can be shared and not exploited or commodified. Um, I also envision a world where uh, families are supported and where families stay together mm. um, and are able to thrive in their communities, have access to education like Taina mentioned, uh, have access to art and culture and music and all of the things that we're told are, are not powerful um, or important unless it's making money. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So yeah, all of those things where our histories aren't erased uh, where our elders can also be part of our daily lives um, and are not seen as disposable if they can't produce. Mm. Um, again, coming back to capitalism, it's just fresh on my mind. But, um, <laughs> Always. Yeah. Yeah, all of those things. And, you know, where women and, and queer folks and youth can uh, walk down, down the street and not feel violated um, by patriarchy or police um, and all of its iterations. Uh, years ago, I was on this panel and uh, somebody asked us that question. And so I, my default was like, yeah, we need, you know, clean, clean water, clean air. Everybody needs access to education. Um, we need, you know, access to housing and healthcare and all of these like sort of, you know, bigger things. And then the other person that was on the panel said to me, so was, was the response was, I just think about my time. Mm-hmm. and like how I would spend my time and I was like that is like profound like imagine if we were able to spend our time in ways that we had our own autonomy and we could find joy and orient toward what brought us joy or even like what our communities needed what our families needed what was in right relationship for our neighbors for the earth and we had the time and I was like to me, that was always something that, that kind of also stuck in my head. And so for, for our audience, you know, uh, we would love for you to continue to vision with us so you can leave some comments for us on what your vision of a liberated world would look like. And you can check out the Patreon page um, and go down to the comment section there and, and speak to us. All right, Taina, Yvette, this is the end of our journey together. I appreciate you both so much. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and all of the work that you do. And I look forward to continuing to build with both of you um, personally, organizationally, and maybe we'll have you back on the podcast at another time to talk about more of your successes. So uh, thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. History has shown me that you'll get hurt and lonely. And now... A phone call from Rasan Thomas. Democracy. It means everyone because it needs everyone. The house divided cannot stand. Hello, I'm Rasan Thomas, and I'm currently serving a life sentence in, in a California state prison for murder. So when I say democracy means everyone because it needs everyone, some people may think you kill someone. We don't need you. 
you don't deserve to breathe, much less vote ever. Of course, people who committed crimes aren't perfect, but they're still worthy of basic human rights. I've been in prison for 18 years, and the people I've met here aren't evil. They were traumatized. They were addicted or had mental health issues. Once they healed, once they received the education, once they kicked addiction, they became productive citizens that make America a better place to live. Besides, whether you believe in forgiveness or an eye for an eye, democracy isn't about an individual or my horrible choices. It's about our country living up to its promise. We pledge allegiance to be one country under God and to live with liberty and justice for all, not just for the people we like, but for all. Yet throughout history, we have placed our right hands over our hearts and uttered empty words. We once denied black people and women their unalienable rights to vote, yet both blacks and women have made our country stronger. How much stronger can we be if every American felt included in our democracy? Today, every citizen in California can vote, except people in prison or on parole, and that needs to change for the good of our country. When we exclude a segment of the population from exercising its right at the ballot box, we hurt society as a whole. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. We use poor voter turnout to divide our country into which sections get inferior schools, the worst cops, and the least resources. This creates a cycle where kids grow up in hoods with limited choices due to a lack of good schools or safe environments. The harder their lives, the harder it is for them to make good choices which lends to zip codes with 60 or 70% of the males end up arrested, many before they ever reach the voting age. Because of this voting disparity, we often end up with leaders without first-hand experience with the problem they are charged to solve. What we get from this is similar to the way American doctors fight cancer. We seek to destroy cancer cells with chemo or remove parts of the body. In other words, we actually attack ourselves as a cure and often weaken the whole. However, I heard that in Europe, they develop a way to cut off the genetic markers that create cancer cells so that they don't grow in the first place. We need the power to vote for leadership that believes in prevention over destruction. I met Assemblymember Reggie Jones Sawyer recently, and he told me that someone came to his office asking for millions to build more prisons for juveniles. The man told him that they predicted more cells would be needed in a few years because of poor third-grade reading levels. It's no wonder because California spends 275000 to incarcerate a juvenile only 11000 on a child's education. The Assemblymember visit San Quentin to get better solutions from impacted people, but how often do leaders do that? Thank God Don Sawyer rather spend and save children than destroy them. But I don't have the power to vote and to make sure that more politicians feel that way. Many of us impacted by our problem understand how best to solve it without destroying ourselves. But if we as a country continue to discount the voices of impacted people, we, in essence, rob a neighborhood of its resources, and we also rob it of its voters, which keeps the cycle of less resources going and continues robbing us of the potential and power of a united country. This cycle dumbs down our country by putting more and more money into prison systems instead of education systems. Imagine if the people impacted by our problem were included in the democratic process for finding a solution. Imagine if we spent the 275000 it costs an incarcerated juvenile for one year on prevention instead. Imagine, instead of doubling the cost of college tuitions over the last 20 years to pay for doubling the cost to incarcerate someone, we produce more scientists than meth cooks. People impacted by a problem need to be empowered to solve the problem, not just for, to better ourselves, but to better our country. 
not being able to vote hampers not just our potential, but the potential of our nation. Because the American dollar isn't backed by gold and silver. It's backed by the promise of America on the backs of all Americans. If we don't live up to that promise, we will become worthless as our deficit grows and grows. That's why when I met Taina Vargas Edmonds and Initiate Justice asked me for a solution, I said, it starts with everyone having the right to vote. Voting is how we pick competent leadership that best represents the needs of all Americans. Without this power, the changes we need to break the cycles of poverty and violence might never receive the attention needed. Moreover, we will continue to spend more on destroying ourselves when we should be investing in greatness. Thank you guys for listening. All right, we're back with the calls to action. The first thing we're going to ask you all to do is to read two books. The first is called City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez. And the other is called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And you can watch 13th by Ava DuVernay on Netflix. And check out Bold Conversations About Race by Color of Change. Not the same as this podcast episode. Los Angeles County is the largest county in the United States with the largest jail system in the world. And for more information about that, you can check out reformlajails.com. And if you're in Los Angeles, you can check out an Aware Saturday Dialogue. And lastly, we're looking for your money. So please donate to Curb and to initiate justice to help them to be able to continue the work that they've been doing to make change. And we take your feedback really seriously. So whatever you like or didn't like or anything you have to say to us, please hop in the show comments and please rate us on iTunes so that we can continue to boost this content. And you can check out the links in the show notes. Thanks, everybody. Bold is a collaboration between Small Beans and Showing Up for Racial Justice, produced by White People for Black Lives. Our theme song, Heartbeats, was written and performed by Rachel Cantu and Melantopia. Heartbeats in these streets, I feel no peace. Heartbeats, heartbeats. Thank you.